0: Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. a love that caused You to send Your only begotten Son into this world to save sinners. We thank You for His sacrificial death, the shed blood that washes away sin, and that justification that are being legally declared righteous in Your sight is by a gift of grace through faith. Thank you that we can approach this ordinance this morning and rejoice in the gospel that saved us and hold this forward to a watching world that only in Christ there is life. Lord, would you give us ears to hear and hearts to obey As we look at your word, still our hearts, deliver us from the distractions of a busy world, and may we respond to the voice of your spirit through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As I started to read through this particular church and its message to the church, something sort of came to mind, and that was false advertising. Right? They have, you have a name, you have a reputation that you're alive, but you are dead. And I looked up false advertising, and one of the things that came up was a humorous but real false advertising. One of those was, instead of the chocolate Easter bunny around Easter time, was a chocolate Pope. So I guess they're trying to bring it back towards that particular religion. And in foil was wrapped a Pope with a golden, you know, top hat with a cross on it. And he's holding a book and he's got his staff and it's a chocolate Pope. You can actually find this online. So if you don't agree with the Easter bunny, we're not encouraging this, but you can get a chocolate Pope. The problem is that when you took the foil off, guess what was underneath the foil? A chocolate bunny. So the reason the ears went off, that's where they covered it. So the only... The only change was the exterior. The exterior looked like something that it wasn't. And then I found, um, you know, if you go through the toy store, Walmart, they sell these little plastic molds of toys. And one of them was called Dinosaur World. And they have a picture of a T-Rex and a, and a Velociraptor. And, but inside there were seven molds of cats. Not saber-toothed tigers, domestic cats. And so you could buy this Dinosaur World and then open up the package and you have seven plastic molded cats. The one I remember that didn't come up, and it's not really false advertising, but some of you, many of you, if I look out at the color of our hair, is in the 1970s, Coca-Cola had a slogan, a phrase, and a jingle that Coke adds life. You remember that? You remember that? I remember that. It was in the middle, mid 1970s. It really came to fruition in 1978. And they would show people drinking Coke all over the world in in regular things that we enjoy. And their slogan was Coke adds life. What they meant by that was it adds enjoyment. But what's the reality? Does Coke add life? Is it some medical cure? Do hospitals keep large amounts of this dark, syrupy, carbonated drink because it adds life? Because if so, if you read the text, then that would answer Sardis' problem because they're dead. The truth is that Coca-Cola is simply a slogan, and what it adds is type 2 diabetes, tooth decay, and potential obesity. But that's not life. So I would call it false advertising, though what they mean is Coke adds enjoyment, of taste for five minutes. And it does help the occasionally upset stomach. Sardis had a more serious problem. Sardis is a church that is dead. And the only one that can bring it back to life is the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus comes, and, the, and that character point that is mentioned by him is to repent. Repent. So it's the Holy Spirit through Christ who is speaking to this church. And what this church needs is to turn from deadness back to life. It's interesting because since a minority have not soiled its clothing, verse 4, we should understand this not as a state of slumber or apathy, but as actively getting contaminated through the world. That's what kills a church. Contamination of the world values. And it's actively through works, verse 2, and they're getting involved in the works of the world while hiding behind a reputation that they live. Let's look at this. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Here's the address and the prophetic messenger formula. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits, that is an enigma. You can get many different interpretations on any particular commentary you read. And it's either suggesting completeness of divine power or the completeness and full presence of the Holy Spirit in each church. Or the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit. But there's something divine going on in the presence of of Jesus Christ, who has the seven spirits of God, and He has what? The seven stars. Do you remember who the seven stars are? In Revelation 1 verse 20, it refers to the seven angels of the churches. could be the leaders of those churches. It could be an, an, a, a real angel over those churches. In either case, here, here's the clear picture. Jesus Christ holds the seven spirits. And the seven stars, which means he is the supreme one who holds complete authority over these churches. That means this. Highlands is Christ's, not ours. He is the head. Without the head, there is no life. There may be a reputation of life. There may be... The appearance of life, but without Christ, the Supreme One as head being honored and gloried, there is no life. And as we saw with the church at Ephesus, if we fail to honor Him, obey Him, if we fail to repent, He can put the lampstand out. Look at the body of the letter. What becomes apparent if you've been, if you've been tracking with us through all the different messages, usually Jesus will come along and He'll, He'll highlight a strength of a church. He'll be like, I know your works, you're doing this well, right? But I have this against you. He doesn't do that with Sardis. Notice the latter part of verse 1. In the place of their works, what they're doing right, he says this, I know your works. And what he knows about them in completeness, in his sovereignty, is this. You have the reputation, you have the name of being alive But you are dead. They claim the Christian name life, but they're actually lifeless. Their past deeds may have given them a reputation for being alive, activity or programs or some kind of history that they sunk their roots down into. And they're hiding behind that and they are accommodating to the pagan environment around them. And Jesus comes with with that divine gaze and he says, I know you. I know your works. You have a name for being alive, but you are dead. It's interesting that just outside of Sardis was a famous necropolis. We would call it a cemetery. And in it were buried dead kings, well-known kings, and it became a type of worship. And what is sad is that the church at Sardis resembled the cemetery more than it resembled a life-giving, light-bearing gathering of Christ-following people. It basically was a morgue with a steeple. If they wanted to live, they had to listen. So look at at verse 2. Here's the solution. What is the response to a dead condition? Five imperatives are given, five commands. Just mark them, I'll read them. Wake up. That's the first one. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. That is the second one. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Here's the third one. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Fourth, keep it. And fifth, repent. The church, like the city, is about to lose itself. If you know anything about the history of Sardis, uh, there was... There was a military outpost, or really a military um, security that was built on top of these cliffs, 1,500 feet high cliffs, and people that went in there felt extremely secure. And one time, uh, one of the leaders, uh, Croesus felt secure enough that he went out and attacked Cyrus and the Persians. And winter came, and so they pulled all their forces back. He thought Cyrus would do the same. He pulled all their forces back, and they returned to Sardis. But Cyrus, clever military tactician, follows him back to Sardis, and they set up siege. There was a Greek saying, the Greeks would say, taking Sardis, and it was basically synonymous with trying to accomplish the impossible because they knew that this sort of garrison was up on top of these cliffs, So they set in for a siege, and Croesus thought he was secure because he was up on top of these cliffs. But the problem is they only watched the one direction that they thought the troops would come. In early special forces, some of Cyrus's men scaled the seemingly impregnable cliffs, snuck in where there were no sentries, opened up the gate, and they were defeated. That happened two times. Now, if you look at these commands, it's almost as though the city of Sardis, an ancient city who was living in the past, Jesus comes to them and uses some imagery that they would understand. Because wake up, we would say, be watchful. We are looking this way for an enemy. And over the walls sneaks the subtle serpent. And over the wall, he whispers into our ears, discontentment and over the wall he encourages gossip and slander and divisiveness and and all of a sudden the city falls so jesus says wake up be watchful show yourself watchful be vigilant in mark chapter 13 jesus says therefore stay awake For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows are in the morning. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Be alert, be vigilant, be watchful. Jesus says this in Matthew 24. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. And would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You know, eschatology, the study of last things, revelation, is not intended to just satisfy our curiosity by piecing together timelines and details. It is meant to nurture holiness. It is meant to turn us away from the ways of the world and towards an expectancy of Christ's return. That's what this ordinance does. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are, we, are, we are admonishing one another to be vigilant. Stay awake. He's coming back a second time. The second command is strengthen what remains. There was a minority that evidenced life and even they were about to die, he says. Jesus' divine gaze found them incomplete. So his order comes with urgency. Wake up, strengthen what remains. The final three commands. We're moving through this quickly. The final three commands actually flow out of their incomplete works. So he's going to say, wake up, right? Be vigilant. Strengthen what remains, for I have found your works incomplete. And now he's going to... Speak into that incompleteness. Here's the solution for incomplete works. And we're going to talk about that at the end. In what ways could our works as a church be incomplete in the sight of God? So be thinking about that. But here's the solution. The final three commands. Remember. Keep it. Repent. Remember. Call to mind. And there are two verbs that indicate the two ways these truths came to them. They received it, and that's the reception of truth, or the reception of the gospel, or the reception of the apostles' doctrine, the, re- the reception of core doctrine, the reception of a gospel that transforms a heart and leads to holy living. You received it, you know it. Now call it to mind. And they heard it. And that's a call to listen and obey. Remember is to act on what you know. You received it and you heard it. Remember these things. So we remember this morning in Romans 12 that we are not to be conformed to this world. We need to remember that as a church. We are not to be pressed into the mold of worldly values and base living. Remember that. Remember what James 4.4 says when he says, you adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Remember those things. When Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Remember those things. Keep it. Call it to mind, then guard it and obey it. And repent, because when we remember the teachings of Christ, right, and this is part of the Great Commission, you go and you baptize, you make disciples, and you teach them everything that Christ has taught. And when it's necessary, we turn our life around, we change, and we head the other direction. That's what repentance is. And often Jesus is calling a church to repent, to turn. Here's the warning. Look at verse 3. Remember who's speaking. Jesus is speaking. If you will not wake up, if you will not remain vigilant, I will come like a thief. Perhaps under inspiration, John was led to use that phrase because of what happened to Sardis two times. The unexpected defeat of their city. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Unexpectedly, this church may have thought they were safe. They may have thought they had fooled everyone that they are alive when in fact they are dead. When you walk through the foyer, there's the stench of decomposition and there's those little pockets of death. But Jesus knows their works. Often the disciples, the apostles, and the early Christians would call to mind Jesus in, in the form of coming like a thief, coming unexpectedly. Let me read one of those to you. Peter, in 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You know, it's a grace. It is God's grace to appear to this church in Sardis and be forthright with them. It is God's grace for him to say, I know your works. He doesn't list any. You're, You're about to die. You're dead. And even the little bit of evidence of life in there, it's about to die with you. And so here's the solution. But if you don't wake up, I'm going to come to you like a thief in the night. And it doesn't seem as though this is the second coming of Christ. This seems to be a personal visit, a historic time where he will come and deal with that church personally. But it's also a grace that Jesus includes the rewards. Look at verse five. There are three rewards. We might say incentives for a holy life. The one who conquers, so there is something to be overcome. There is something to conquer. There is a persevering, which indicates difficulty, trial, and testing. The one who overcomes first will be clothed thus in white garments. Beautiful picture of purity and the cleansing of Christ and the imputation where we receive the very righteousness of Jesus Christ and we give to Him our unrighteousness. We don't wear white garments because we have served the best or we've attended church the longest or we've checked all the boxes just right we wear white garments because of the work of Jesus Christ and we reflect our thankfulness by then obeying him they will be clothed thus in white garments here's the second reward And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. That's a fearful statement if you think about it. There's this ledger. And there are names in this ledger. Is your name in that ledger? The idea of the divine ledger is first mentioned in the Old Testament in Exodus 32, where Moses prays, he's interceding for the people. And he says that if God will not forgive the sin of the people, then he himself wants to be blotted out. He says this of the book you have written. It's also used in Psalms, in Daniel. See, in the Old Testament, there was a book of life that was a register for all those who held citizenship in the in the theocratic community of Israel. They were actually entered in. There are, there are historical data, and I think in Athens records it the, the, the most, that when a criminal was found guilty and he was about to be executed, what they would do right before he died is they would remove his name. There would be an erasure of that person's name because of the shame of the character of that person, that he is no longer a citizen. We no longer identify with him. The book of life appears five other times in Revelation let me read one of those five references because it indicates that in this book are contained all the names of believers written before the foundation of the world. Let me just read. Quote, it's Revelation 13, 8, been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So before the foundation of the world, there are names entered into a book. And God already knew before he created the world and he placed Adam and Eve in the garden that the lamb would be slain. So when you go to doubt God or his goodness or or you enter into this sort of crisis that if God if God knew that that humanity would plunge into sin, why did he go ahead and create the world anyway? You need to know this and rest in the sovereignty of the king. That he was never taken by surprise. And he already prepared a way for salvation. And the lamb was already slain before the foundation of the earth. That would be a historic reality. Here's the third incentive. By the way, there are other books. We'll get to those in Revelation 20. Books that record the sins of unbelievers on the basis of which they will be judged. So you've got all these, these different books. That bring meaning to the urgency of righteous living. The third is, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Just think, just, just stop. There's a picture of Joshua the high priest. This is in Zechariah where he, he goes and he appears before the Lord and Satan accuses him. And he's there in filthy garments. And it's a beautiful picture because one comes alongside and puts new garments on him. Not because of anything that Joshua had done, but because it was a divine move to clothe him in righteousness. Do you know what, folks? Even if you just look at the last week, Satan doesn't have to lie about you to condemn you right now. I mean, unless you live perfect for the last seven days. And I, don't, and I don't preach the doctrine of sinless perfectionism. So Satan doesn't have to lie about you to condemn you. He doesn't have to lie about me. All he has to do is tell the truth about me. He says to tell the truth about my motives, about my choices, about my reactions, about I me, mean, just the whole list. He, he, can, he can tell the truth and condemn me. But the truth is that when we are in Christ... I have the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks down upon me, he sees the sinlessness of the slain, slain lamb of God. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And when you place your faith in him, the object of your faith being Jesus Christ, he washes and cleanses and puts on new garments. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So when the adversary comes and condemns and accuses. Jesus Christ, the son. Confesses you before the father. He stands in your behalf. Which means this. You're safe. It's going to be okay. And then. Jesus said this in Matthew 10:32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. And then he ends with a characteristic call to listen. Look at verse six. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Churches, plural, not just Sardis. It's for every church. It's for us. And so in the New Testament, every passage on the return of Christ, every passage on the second coming of Christ, makes the point of living life from the perspective of accountability to God. That's what eschatology does. It causes us not to just live here and make sensual choices now, expedient choices now. It forces us to look forward and to walk by faith and to allow eschatology to bring forth and nurture a holy walk with our Lord. So as we approach the ordinance of communion, let me ask three questions that I'll I'll develop each one, just by way of examination and preparation before we lift the emblems of Christ's death and shed blood to our lips. Are we vigilant... For early warning signs when a church is losing its life? Are we watchful to be sure that we are not blind to early warning signs of death? Galatians 5, Paul puts forward a list, and he says, The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. That will kill a church. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger. That will kill a church. Rivalries. Dissensions. Divisions. Envy drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. See, folks, that will kill a church. And so Jesus comes through the message to Sardis, and he says, be watchful. Wake up and repent. Romans 8:6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. James 1 15 and desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. But the gospel gives hope. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8 for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Are you free in Christ this morning? Then walk in line with your calling Are we vigilant for early warning signs when a church is losing its life? Secondly, in what ways might our works as a church be incomplete in the sight of God? In what ways might our works, this is what he told the church at Sardis, in what ways might our works be incomplete in the sight of God? Just a few sub-questions. How are we doing in helping the weak and faint-hearted? Encourage the faint-hearted, Paul says in 1 1 Thessalonians 5. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. How are we doing in helping the hurting and the abused? How are we doing with that? Have we turned a blind eye because it's time-consuming and messy? And we'd rather be liked than be an agent of change. Have we sided with those who have the most money or influence because we're governed by fear and we're intimidated and we're mildly bullied because in our hearts we're greedy? Oh, no, no, we got to be very Mm, careful. Well, over here, a child is being forgotten or a wife is overlooked and victimized. Partiality will kill a church. Are we willing to do right and be unpopular? All these questions come down to a single question. Do we cherish Christ more than our friends? Do we cherish Christ more than money? Do we cherish Christ more than popularity? Do we cherish Christ more than comfort? Will we choose Christ with offense or or will we choose to compromise in order to avoid conflict? And the last question, which is more of a statement. The word name, if you've looked at this passage, if you've looked at this series of verses, runs like a thread throughout this passage. You have a name, a reputation. You have a name that you're alive, but you're what? You're dead. You have a few names there that give evidence of life, but even there, the minority, because of... Your corrupt influence, even that minority, is about to die. I will not blot your name out of the book of life. So, by design, this word name sort of leaps out at us and arrests us. The church had a name, but it was a lie. There are a few names, but they're about to die. Christ will not erase a redeemed person's name from the book of life. And if name represents our identity in Christ or our Christ-like character, right? I am in Christ. I am a Christian. Then what does this mean in terms of the nature of Christian commitment? So if I profess Christ's name, but I go out in Walmart get in a scuffle and knock a guy to the floor because I'm angry, what has that done to the name of Christ? By the way, I didn't do that. It was Target. No. If you profess the name, but then you go downtown and live in sensual living Friday and Saturday night, and then you come here without any repentance, you lift these emblems to your lips. If you profess the name, but you are unrepentant and a habitual liar, What does that do to the name of Christ? Paul says this in 2 Timothy. The Lord knows those who are His and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Here's how we do that. Sound doctrine, including church discipline, needs to be aggressively revived in Christ's church. This is how a church grows in the love and the holiness of God. By healthy Teaching by instruction. Pure living needs to be aggressively revived. True and sincere holiness. Moral purity. Right living. Pure thoughts. Holiness from the inside out. Not simply putting on nice garments and saying, look at me. True, pure, moral living. And the propagation of the gospel needs to be revived. We have a large budget. Nice clothes. Nice building. Ministry activity. The appearance of life. But are we loving God supremely? Are we proving that by loving each other? And are we making disciples? And I am encouraged. This is a very firm, maybe even a negative tone. But I am very encouraged by what the Lord is doing in our midst. I believe there is life. But I believe there is a clarion call for us to remain vigilant so that we're all looking this direction and without knowing it, The enemy slips over the wall, starts whispering lies into our ears. We start tolerating sin. We start accommodating with the world. And before we know it, we have a name that we are alive, but we're dead. So repent. That's a gift of grace to repent. And be encouraged with Christ's promises. You will walk with him. You will be clothed in white garments. Your name is in the book of life. And Christ will confess you before the Father. Let's pray.